says, Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we went down and on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue in our worship now of you that you would just prepare our hearts accordingly, Lord, to be receptive to what it is that you want to say to us, that, Lord, you would remove from us that which would hinder or distract us from hearing that voice of your spirit saying to us personally what we need to hear this day from this very portion of your word that lord your voice would be clear and that our hearts would be responsive and attentive and we ask as always lord for the power of your holy spirit and his ministry to speak to our hearts that which you would want us to hear bless your word lord we ask together in jesus name and everyone said amen amen you may be seated Now, is it possible that in your life you find yourself, as we all do from time to time, struggling with accepting what may actually be the Lord's will in a given situation in your life? You know, as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, our highest desire should be that the will of the Lord be done in all situations, not our will. Not the preference of someone else, not what everyone else thinks would be best, but that our highest desire would be, Lord, I want your will to be done. Lord, what's your will in this situation? And of course, when we talk about the will of the Lord, we're talking about his desire. What's his decision on a particular matter? When we talk about the will of the Lord, we're talking about the reality that there is indeed something that the Lord wants. The Lord does have a preference and the Lord does have a plan. And that's something that we want to see 
come to pass as we cooperate with what he's trying to do as hard as it may be and that's really the process in chapter 21 here that we start to see unfolding between Paul and some other believers who were amongst him and connected to him and let's be very honest sometimes it is challenging is it not figuring out the Lord's will it's a process we all struggle through it's a difficult thing sometimes to genuinely figure out Lord what is your will and beyond that it's sometimes difficult than accepting what the Lord's will is. That's a hard thing to do sometimes, to sort of swallow our emotions or set aside our pride or our fears or our concerns and to just say, Lord, I accept your will. I'm willing to embrace your will as difficult as it may be. Yet by faith and submission, we need to say, much like our Lord Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. Remember the background as we come to chapter 21 now. Paul has just left the area of Miletus, where remember he was together, we saw in chapter 20, with the, the leadership spiritually from the church of Ephesus and those in Asia Minor. And he was kind of conducting this ministry or leadership training, and he met them in Miletus because he was trying to be, it said, in Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. And so Paul had them leave from where they were, come over to a location he was, so they wouldn't get preoccupied in the area of Ephesus and that he could continue on his way to Jerusalem. And knowing the deep bond that he had with these men and the likelihood that this was going to be the last time he might ever see them ever again, Paul poured out his heart to give them instruction regarding ministry to help train them. And then we saw there was this very difficult and emotional departure that happened because of the great love they had for one another. If you look back in chapter 20, verse 36 through 38, that, that was kind of this departure we read of last time. It says, and when he had said all these things, they then knelt down and they prayed together. And it says, they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And then they accompanied him to the ship. So it was kind of much like as I look at verses 36 through 38 and what's going on there, this emotional departure because of the bond and the closeness they all have with one another relationally. It kind of looks like in some ways what we at time to time experience when we're saying goodbye maybe to a loved one. Uh, and we may never see their face again because maybe they're about to depart into eternity and typically that time that's a difficult and an emotional departure and kind of like Paul and his team and those he was with here we you know kind of tend to do the same hey we're spending time together and there's embracing and there's tears and crying and saying things and kind of praying together a few last times and kind of sort of a similar dynamic you see happening here so Paul now departs and chapter 21 picks up with his journey saying now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail now notice Luke here again indicates after boarding the ship they departed and now set sail on their journey which is now the voyage back home where they're headed to from their third missionary journey what's interesting is the term that Luke uses there in verse 1 for departed he says when we had departed it's a very strong term in the Greek it's actually a term that indicates to actually be torn forcibly away from something. That's the term that Luke uses there as he's writing about their departure from one another to literally be torn violently away. The idea is it was a difficult thing to separate. 
We departed, he says, but it was like, honestly, that we were just being ripped apart from one another. And again, the reason for that being, it was a painful tearing and separation to be pulled away from someone that they had such a bond with. Someone they had developed this emotional connection to and this deep relationship with. And now it's like being torn away from one another. It was painful. It was heartbreaking. And it was like this tearing and this separation because of the deep connection that they held. Yet sometimes, hard as it may be for Paul, for others, for you and I, sometimes part of the Lord's will for our life is times of separation. Times where we may indeed need to depart from our connection to someone else. Maybe the Lord's calling somebody home to go be in heaven with them. That's a difficult departure, but sometimes that is part of the Lord's will. The Bible says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's hard for us because we're departing from one another, but it's precious to the Lord because he's bringing them into their eternal inheritance. But it makes the departure hard and it's hard to accept. Okay, Lord, this is your will. You're calling him home. You're calling her home right now. But sometimes even in our lives, just relationally, situations arise, different dynamics, whatever it may be. Sometimes it is part of the Lord's will that there comes maybe an end of a relationship or the separation of two people, maybe who were together doing something together, but just God sovereignly working and moving somebody on. And and that separation and departure is actually the Lord's will. And it's something that we need to just embrace as a part of something that God is doing for his purposes. When we're separated from those we deeply love, it's painful emotionally and it's difficult. But those are the times that we have to remember God's words, for example, to Joshua. When he was dealing with the difficult departure of Moses from his life. And remember, him and Moses had this wonderful bond. He had served with Moses for years and years as an assistant to him. And now Moses was dying and the Lord was separating Moses from Joshua's life. The Lord was removing from Joshua's life someone who had been a part of his life and was a very you know, tight bond that he shared with someone. And the Lord said this to Joshua in the midst of that painful departure and separation. He said to Joshua, I will be with you. In other words, Moses won't be with you anymore. The time for that has come to an end. But I'm still going to be with you, Joshua. My presence will still be with you. I can fill the void that's there in your life. And he said, not only will I be with you, but he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Joshua, you'll never be alone. You're, you're worried about loneliness because you're going to miss Moses. But Joshua, you'll never be alone because I will always be with you. And I'll never need to leave you or forsake you. And more than that, I'll never abandon you. I'm a constant presence in your life. And what an encouragement to remember that because the presence of the Lord and experiencing his presence is what does indeed sustain us and supply to us what we need when we're separated from someone else relationally. When there's a departure like Paul departing from them hard as it was, it helps us navigate and adjust those times of departure when they are indeed a part of the Lord's will. So it says, it came to pass that we departed, and now we begin sort of this almost travel log of sorts we've seen before. Luke begins to describe, running a straight course, we came to Kaz, the following day then to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. So again, Luke's kind of detailing this travel log of their journey, 
We've seen him do this before, keeping very accurate records of their ministry activity. I think this is great stewardship and missionary work and ministry work, keeping accurate records. God cares about that with things. He describes how they're traveling south, basically. If you have a Bible map in the back of your Bible, back of your Bible, probably you can see this. They're kind of traveling south along the coastline, stopping at these different ports. From Miletus to Kaz was about 50 miles. And then it says they went from Kaz to Rhodes. That was another 50 or 60 miles traveling. They stop at that port. And then from Rhodes, Luke says, we went next to Patera, another 65-mile journey or so as they're coming south along the coastline. And verse 2 says, and then finding a ship there, sailing over to Phoenicia across the Mediterranean, we went aboard and set sail. So needing next at this point, they realize to now travel across westward, across the Mediterranean Sea, back over to the, Mediter- or the mainland area, excuse me, of the Middle East. They find a ship, it says, verse 2, sailing over to Phoenicia. And Phoenicia would be the mainland area over where Israel was. And just north of the territory of Israel, we often refer to it today as Lebanon. And they get aboard this ship. They take now about a 400-mile journey all the way across the Mediterranean to the next location. Verse 3 says, And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, verse 3 says, sailed then on to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. So verse 3 describes their westward journey across the Mediterranean. It says there that they saw Cyprus on their left, which means they're coming south over across that way. They're south of the island of Cyprus. They can see it on their left as they're heading straight ahead towards the mainland area of the Middle East territory. And they land ultimately on the mainland at the area of Tyre. And Tyre is just north of the northernmost border of Israel. And the reason they stopped at Tyre, that port, verse 3, Luke says, is because that's where the ship was intended to unload its cargo. It was a cargo ship. So they stop there. It takes a few days. They're unloading their cargo. And look what happens while they're there a few days unloading their cargo. Verse 4, it says, In finding disciples, we stayed there for seven days. So while in the city of Tyre, They find a group of believers who it seems they kind of lodge amongst for a week's time, probably to fellowship and to worship. What's interesting is that we have no record, at least in the book of Acts, of exactly how the gospel got to the area of Tyre or how maybe even a church got planted in the area of Tyre. But it reminds us how the Lord was always working in all kinds of ways, even though everybody wasn't always aware of what God was doing over here and how God was working over there, that the spirit of the Lord was using willing, available vessels, anyone who was willing to make themselves available for Jesus to use them. It wasn't just Paul, the apostle and Silas and Barnabas and Timothy, these names that we know more. The Lord was working through believers who were just yielding themselves as they would go to areas to share the gospel, to even plant churches, it seems, at times. And this reminds us that the book of Acts does not give to us an exhaustive record of everything that was happening in the early church. As we said before, the book of Acts, uh, lengthy as it seems to us, covers about a 30-year period. It's just the Holy Spirit giving us snapshots 
here and there of different events and situations that were happening in the early church to kind of touch upon the highlights of what the Spirit of God was doing as the gospel was spreading around in those first few decades after Jesus left. What's interesting is that verse 3 says that Paul goes to this area of Tyre, and again, keep in mind Tyre was a pagan city predominantly, which means that it would have been characterized by a lot of immoral activities, a lot of dark and sinful practices. So Paul and his team, to me, very wisely do something. Verse 3 says, or verse 4 says, excuse me, that they went and they found disciples. That is, they sought out Christian fellowship. They looked to see if there were believers in this new city and in this location where they were in that territory. No doubt when they arrived, Paul or someone, hey, let's see if there are some believers here in Tyre. Let's see if there are any followers of Jesus. And verse 4 says, finding disciples, they stood with them for seven days. That is, once they connected with some believers, they then stood connected to those believers during the duration of their time there for that week. And I think that's great, great wisdom the Holy Spirit sets before us there. Great wisdom to seek out fellowship of like-minded believers. When you go to a new territory, when you move to a new city, when you end up in some new situation or new location, or if you are in a spot where you know, hey, on this college campus, there's a lot of pressure to do what's wrong. I better find some believers to support me and help me in the midst of this process. As I'm working at this job, let me see if there's another Christian here at this job place to help support me and uphold me. I want to encourage you, be wise and intentional to do this to safeguard your spiritual experience. The Bible is very clear warning us that bad company corrupts good habits. And so we we want to win the lost and reach them, but we need the fellowship of like-minded believers to stay strong in the Lord, to remain accountable, because bad company will corrupt good character habits in our lives. By the same token, the Bible also tells us that spending time with fellow believers is how we're built up and encouraged spiritually. It's what stirs up love and good works among us and helps us stay on track. If I can give you a practical encouragement in light of this, let me say this. Always find a group of solid believers and then stay with them. Find a group of solid believers and stick with them. Spend time with them. Make connections with them. The Bible is clear and it's important that that's the Lord's will for us as his followers. As Christians, we are not supposed to serve Jesus independently. As Christians, we're supposed to follow and serve Jesus interdependently with other believers, sharing our lives with one another, receiving and giving to one another within community what we need from the work of the Spirit. So as Paul's there for this week, this interesting set of events unfolds. Verse 4 says that this particular group of believers they met their entire told Paul through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. So while this group of believers is spending time with Paul, it seems some more messages come forth regarding Paul's, as we've seen, very strong intentions to want to go to the area of Jerusalem as his next ministry location. The believers there seeking to share what they believed the Holy Spirit was impressing upon them. It says they told Paul, verse 4, not to go up to Jerusalem. 
In other words, they were telling Paul that what they sensed from the Spirit was that the Spirit was trying to prohibit Paul from going to Jerusalem, that he should not go there, that he should abandon that idea because it was not the Lord's will, and they believed that the Spirit was trying to stop Paul from going to Jerusalem. Now, this creates a bit of a challenge here, especially considering our prior chapters, the challenge being this, who's right? Is Paul right? Or are these believers right who are telling Paul, hey, we think from the Spirit you're not supposed to go to Jerusalem. Paul sensed that he was directed to go there despite the challenges he would face. This group of believers we see uh, sensed that the Holy Spirit was trying to prohibit Paul and to hinder him. And let me just say to you, commentators divide on that very answer. And you are free to come up with your own conclusion in regards of that. And look, let me say, though Paul, like any believer, can err, and any believer can misjudge and potentially not accurately interpret what the Lord's leading them to do or their direction that God's giving to them, my personal conviction, and since I have the microphone for the moment, (laughs) is that Paul was accurate in following what the Lord was leading him to do in continuing to move forward as part of the Lord's will and that these believers sensed what the Spirit had been saying to many other believers that there was going to be danger and problems and arrest and difficulty and that their then application of that meant that Paul wasn't supposed to go because something bad might happen to him. Again, if I can refresh your memory, Paul has sensed for some time, we've watched it as we've studied through this book together, that the Lord wanted him to go to Jerusalem, remember, to bring a financial gift from the Gentile Christians to the suffering Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem church as a way of showing love and helping them in a hard time economically. We're told back in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, that Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. We then saw last time in Acts chapter 20 together, as Paul was speaking to the leaders there from Ephesus, if you look back in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 22, Paul speaking to them, remember his words, he said, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, every city I keep visiting and administering, the Holy Spirit keeps giving a prophetic word saying regarding my trip to Jerusalem that chains and tribulations await me. Paul's resolve though, verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which he says I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So as Paul went city after city, visiting, ministering, he testifies how the Holy Spirit kept continuously through different believers giving a prophetic word confirming, Paul, when you go to Jerusalem, it's not going to be easy. You're going to be arrested there, Paul. Things are going to be difficult. And he wasn't getting all the details. You notice what he says there? He says, Not knowing the things that will happen to me, he says, except the Holy Spirit says chains and tribulations. In other words, Paul was saying, I'm getting a generic message from the Holy Spirit, chains and tribulations. But he says, I don't have the whole picture. I'm walking by faith. He's saying the Holy Spirit's testifying through people. This is generally what's going to happen. But Paul, we can't give you every detail because we're not God and we don't know everything. 
And Paul says, but none of this deters me. I'm committed by faith to do whatever it takes, he says, to finish my course in the ministry the Lord has given to me. Despite how hard it is, he says, I want to be faithful to the Lord's purpose and what he's leading me to do. Now, so what then is going on, verse 4, with this one group of particular believers in Tyre who are kind of trying to challenge the whole thing? It says here that through the Spirit, they tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. To me, these believers, like others before them, were indeed sensing accurately, as others had, chains and tribulations and hardships were waiting for Paul in Jerusalem. And they didn't have all the other details, which is kind of scary. Well, what happens after the chains and tribulations? Yet they're discerning that accurately their personal interpretation of what that meant as the Spirit was showing them chains and tribulations, their personal interpretation of what that meant for Paul as they feel compelled, it seems, to take it to the next level and give an application caused them to therefore, as they're speaking, believe that this meant Paul should not go and that this was a stop sign. In other words, what's taking place to me is they went from a general sense of being shown something by the Spirit, problems will arise in Jerusalem, to trying to get a little bit more specific and feel they also needed to give Paul a prophetic word of direction to tell him, we believe this is what God's saying to you. This is what God's will is for you. And as they try and go to this next level, I think perhaps telling Paul that the Spirit was prohibiting him, it appears that the Lord's trying to prepare Paul. And I believe the Lord was doing that, preparing Paul. Look, here's, things are going to get tough in Jerusalem. When you go there, there's going to be difficulties. He didn't get anything beyond that, but it seems these believers, as they heard that same message trying to be helpful, their own interpretation, I think, though well-intended, led them to, in my conviction, get a little bit off track to feel like that they needed to give Paul a little bit further clarity and tell him a little bit more specifically what God means by this, Paul, is he's trying to prevent you. You, you shouldn't go there. And this is their interpretation of that. They took what was a general sense from the Spirit that all the others were getting that were giving prophetic words, and they carried out the specific collusion and perhaps erred in doing so with misapplication. And let me just say by way of application, they demonstrate to me that as we share at times impressions that the Holy Spirit may indeed give to us, we always need to take in consideration that sometimes we are imperfect as human beings in conveying exactly and maybe clearly what the Spirit is trying to reveal or to show to us. And we're all prone to that. We may get one part right, problems are coming, but we may not get the whole next part right by saying, therefore, that means God's preventing you from doing that. Remember, 1 Corinthians 13 says in these earthly bodies, as the Spirit works through our fleshly human bodies now, it says we see in part. And it says we prophesy in part. The idea is sometimes God lets us see part of something. Sometimes we can prophesy part of something as many had. Paul said in Acts 20, many had been telling me it's going to be tough, but they couldn't tell me all the other part. He says, but we don't know what's going to happen beyond that. And I believe here that's what you have taking place. We don't always see everything clearly, folks. And let me say, humility admits that. 
Humility admits, I sense the Lord is, is kind of showing me this, but brother, I don't know what that means. The Lord will show you, but, but I, I just, I, I kind of sense generally the Lord is telling me this or that he's revealing this to me, but you need to keep seeking Jesus and walk that out in faith and, and the Lord will show you what that means for God's will for your life and how that's going to unfold. And be very careful that we don't sometimes take a general sense from the Spirit and try and get a little too specific and if I could say, maybe get a little too hyper-spiritual and start trying to iron out every little specific detail of what that means and this is God's will and you shouldn't do this or you should do that, I think we need to be careful there because that's where sometimes that mistake can happen where we try and determine God's will or declare God's will for others. We need to remember our human weaknesses, share generally what we are certain of, and realize it's challenging to determine God's will and a lot of times it's a process of walking things out by faith. And letting God speak to people clearly as they navigate their own course, listening to the Spirit themselves. Verse 5, Luke then says, And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed, went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And again, he says, we knelt down and prayed on the shore with them. So again, another departure now from the believers in Tyre they'd spent time with. And what a beautiful picture there in verse 5, whole families. It says the men, the wives, the children, they're all there in this send-off. And husbands and wives and children all together, they kneel down on the shore and they pray together with Paul and his missions team before they depart. I think what a beautiful scene to see those families together. Families on their knees together, praying and seeking the Lord. Indeed, to me, that lines up so beautifully with what the will of the Lord is for a household. And that's seeking the Lord together. Together as one, seeking the Lord. Reminds me of Joshua 24, where Joshua declares, As for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. And here this beautiful picture of them together as families, sending Paul off, praying together. Verse 6, he then says, And when we had taken our leave of one another, we again boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we then came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren there, and stayed with them one day. So they now depart, set sail, they travel further south along the coast there. And now they come finally and enter into the area of northern Israel. It says they land at the port of Ptolemaeus, which is modern-day Akko in northern Israel. So they now have gotten into the territory of northern Israel. They spend a day with the believers there before heading further south. Verse 8 says, And then on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed, came to Caesarea, entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So they journey further south. They now arrive, verse 8 says, the beautiful sure city of Caesarea, very beautiful, there in Israel. And when they get there, they meet up and spend time visiting and lodging with Philip, and his godly family. You see what verse 8 says there? Look at it. It says, They entered and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, it says, who was one of the seven. Now, when it says that he was one of the seven, what that's referring us to is going back about 20 years at this point to Acts chapter 6, 
Well, remember, as the church in Jerusalem was growing and there was growth pains and the church was expanding, it was becoming difficult for the elders, the spiritual leaders, to keep up with all of the practical responsibilities of that growth. And it says that they were struggling and saying, look, this isn't good. It's causing us to struggle keeping up with and almost neglecting praying for people and praying with people and teaching the word of God. So they said, we need to appoint some men who can oversee this widow distribution ministry and handle these practical affairs. And it says they selected and looked for seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, who had good reputation to care for this responsibility. And Philip was one of those seven. One of those seven who was appointed to this deacon's ministry, if you would, who faithfully served, waiting on tables, doing practical ministry. And then in Acts chapter 8, the Lord expands Philip's ministry. Because as Philip had faithfully served in practical things, then it says Philip was led to go to the area of Samaria. And Jesus said the gospel was to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And Philip seems the first one to go to Samaria. This faithful servant now goes to Samaria. He begins sharing the gospel. And this incredible spiritual awakening happens in Samaria. And now Philip's being used as a preacher of the gospel and souls, multitudes are being saved and lives are being transformed. The Holy Spirit does this powerful ministry through Philip. Miracles are happening and people are being converted. And then after that's taking place, it tells us then that the Spirit spoke to Philip and said to him, now I want you to leave this very fruitful, effective work and I want you to go out into the middle of the desert. And Philip, by faith, believe the Lord he chose to say Lord not my will your will be done I don't understand this but if this is what you want me to do I'm your servant he goes out into a desert and you remember the story he goes out there and he sees this caravan of people it's an Ethiopian dignitary who's out there a secretary of of one of their cabinet members and he's reading a scroll from the prophet Isaiah And Philip recognizes, I guess this is what I'm out here for. He walks over, he recognizes this man's reading out loud Isaiah 53. (laughs) And Philip says, uh, hey, do you know what you're reading there? And he says, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? That's called an open door. (laughs) And so Philip preaches Jesus to him, leads the man to Christ. He was prepared. It was a divine appointment. God cared about one soul, so he took him from a revival and he sent him out in the middle of the desert to lead one person to Christ because God cares about one person. We should remember that. Philip leads him to Christ. He baptizes him in the water there. And it says this in Acts chapter 8, which brings us to how he gets here in Caesarea. It says, when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. He went on his way rejoicing, but Philip was found at Azotus and then passing through, he preached at all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So Philip kind of yanked away after the missions completed there. He baptizes this guy. He brings him out of the water. He says, congratulations, brother. You're welcome to the family of God. And then miraculously, the Holy Spirit like raptures him, 
plants him somewhere else in an area, and then it says he preached his way through different cities sharing the gospel until he settles now, verse 8, into the area of Caesarea, where he now has, verse 8 and 9 tell us, this wonderful reputation and this incredibly godly family. It tells us in verse 8 here that he had the title Philip the Evangelist. That is, he was known as someone called and gifted to exercise the spiritual office of being an evangelist. And again, an evangelist is a biblical title for someone with a unique calling and gifting from the Holy Spirit to effectively share the gospel and lead people into spiritual conversion. This is what an evangelist is, someone used by the Lord to routinely and effectively lead people into salvation through Jesus Christ. Look, folks, we are all called to share the gospel. All of us. We're all called to share the gospel, tell people how to get saved, try and lead people into salvation in Christ. But some, the Bible says, are uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit with this. Some are uniquely by calling and God giving to them a capacity to be very effective in this ministry of evangelism of leading people to Christ. Ephesians 4 says, even as God has given pastors and teachers, he has also given to the church some who are evangelists, those who are genuine evangelists. I mean, think of those like a Billy Graham, right? Or a Greg Laurie, those who have incredible ministries of evangelism. Yet there are others who are not leading large conventions and having worldwide meetings who are just as much called to the office spiritually of being an evangelist that use that gift in very informal ways in neighborhoods in their jobs with their friends they they just have this unique burden for lost souls and more than that a, a, just a real spiritual gifting to be very effective in sharing the gospel with people and more than that leading people into a conversion experience because they're gifted to be evangelists. For some people, that is their calling. And if that is the Lord's will for your life, can I encourage you, obey that. Exercise that calling and that gifting. The Lord wants to use you to bring lost people into his flock. The Lord wants to use you specifically to exercise that gifting to lead souls to Christ. And that's a crucial ministry. It's a vital ministry. To be able to let the Lord use you, as we've seen all throughout the book of Acts, it says souls were added to the church. It didn't say seats were filled in the church. It says souls were added to the church. The Lord wants to add souls. Once we become a part of the church, yes, then we want to encourage and equip and train and worship. But beautiful to see Philip exercising this gift. And if you have it, I encourage you, exercise it. Exercise it. Let the Lord use you to lead people to Christ. It's a wonderful thing. Philip not only just had a public ministry though, but he also raised a very godly family and ministered at home because verse nine says, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Notice he had daughters that were morally pure. They were virgins. Morally pure. He led and directed and oversaw their lives in a way where he protected their moral purity and they kept their moral purity in the midst of their culture there they were morally pure and they also were spiritually effective because it says these daughters also prophesied 
That is, they were used in a special way by the Lord to speak a word from God to people. The Lord would use them and what they would share to help people spiritually as they exercise that gift. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. So that's what they were doing. The Lord would use these gals, morally pure but spiritually effective, to encourage people, to speak words that were comforting, words that were helpful to exhort and challenge people to live for the things of God. You know, Philip, to me, reminds us that it is the will of the Lord, first of all, to be faithful in whatever we do in serving the Lord. He reminds us of that. That part of the will of the Lord for our lives is to be faithful in doing whatever we do to serve the Lord. That's important for us because he may be preparing us for bigger things. Philip started out just waiting tables, but he was faithful in doing that. And Jesus said he who's faithful in least will also be faithful in much. So look, whatever you do for the Lord, it's the will of the Lord. Be faithful in that because being faithful in that may be what's preparing you for something bigger God wants to do in your life later on. So get prepared. Be faithful where you're at now. Philip also reminds us as well that it's the Lord's will to embrace our spiritual calling and exercise our gifting as an evangelist or in whatever way God wants to use us uniquely. And he also reminds us that our ministry should not just be limited to reaching everybody in the neighborhoods, it should start in our homes. And that we should never devalue the ministry of giving faithful service to the Lord right among our immediate family above everything else. Verse 10, Luke then goes on to say, And as we stayed many days, then a serpent prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, the area of southern Israel. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind this man who owns this bell and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So here comes now another one of these prophecies from the Holy Spirit, from a known and reputable prophet, Agabus, who people knew him as a legitimate prophet from the area of Judea. He comes, and much like the spiritual activity of the Old Testament prophets, you notice there, verse 11, he actually acts out his prophecy. You know, we see Jeremiah and Ezekiel and some of these Old Testament prophets where they actually act out their prophecy. He says he takes Paul's belt and then he ties him up and he says, like a time up like a prisoner, this is what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt when he goes to Jerusalem. You have to wonder if Paul was thinking, I just borrowed that belt from Luke. I just, that's really not my belt. I mean, but, but he's acting out. This is what's going to happen. You're going to go there. You're going to be arrested. And again, the Holy Spirit was reaffirming, confirming again with this predictive prophecy, this is what's going to come, Paul, when you get to Jerusalem. And it's, it's, it's going to be real. It's going to happen. But no further indication beyond him just being bound and arrested, informing him so he's prepared. Verse 12 says, Now when we, Luke includes himself and the missions team, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded, notice now they're pleading with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So as Paul's team hears this scary news once again, out of love for him, look what they do. Now they start trying to protect him themselves, like the believers it seems were indicating back in Tyre when he was there. They now, with their emotions stirred, they care about Paul and they don't want to lose him because they realize this guy's valuable. We don't know what it would be like without Paul. So they now start through this process wrestling with fear and worry in their humanity. They start to do what they can to preserve Paul's welfare. 
It says there in verse 12 that they start pleading with him, begging him not to go to Jerusalem, lest something happen to him. This reminds me really of what Peter did out of love for Jesus. Remember, it tells us in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he was going to be arrested, that he was going to suffer, and that he was going to die in Jerusalem. And it's at that point that Peter took Jesus aside hearing that something bad was going to happen to him. And Peter began to rebuke Jesus saying, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. To which Jesus responded, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What was happening? Peter loved Jesus. He loved Jesus. The thought of hearing something bad would happen to Jesus, he couldn't, it just broke his heart. And he tried to resist and stop Jesus from struggling, to stop Jesus from anything happening. And Jesus said to him, Peter, I appreciate your love, but your mindset is not on the things of God. Your mindset is from a human perspective and your emotions are clouding your judgment, Peter. It's your emotions that are making you resist this. And sometimes out of love for people and attachment to them and our own logical reasoning, that can cause us sometimes to struggle with accepting God's will. It's a natural process. We may actually even try and persuade somebody from not doing something. I wonder how many missionaries never went on the field because their parents laid a guilt trip on them. Oh, that's dangerous. Don't, and, and look, our emotions can cloud these things sometimes. Sometimes we may struggle with understanding God's will or God's path and understanding God's ways and even accepting what God's plan may be. And so then, like these believers here, we may actually try and stop what God's doing. You know, more than once, believers, out of love for people, have kept them from struggling. You know, a parent, you know, got to stop their child from struggling or somebody gets themselves in a little trouble. We want to step in and stop all the consequences. And God's going, I'm trying to bring consequences. Let them struggle. I'm trying to teach them something. And you keep getting involved. They're never going to want a savior if you keep being their savior. And sometimes we, we in our emotions, this can be a challenge for us. We want to prevent struggle. It may be God's purpose to let somebody struggle. It may be part of something God's doing. Look what Paul says, verse 13. He answered and said, what do you mean? By weeping and breaking my heart, he says. I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul, sensing the struggle against what he believed the Lord's will was directing him to do, stands firm, pushes back, and he tries to offer a little counsel. The first thing he says to him is, look, your lack of support trying to deter me from what I believe is God's will. He says, this is breaking my heart. Well, he says, why are you doing this? He's saying you're letting your emotions cloud your judgment in the matter. Sometimes it is tough, right? And Paul understood that, to work past our emotions and to yield to the will. But that's where God works from, the will, not the emotions. And our emotions may not always line up with what the will in obeying God's will is telling us to do or what God may be telling someone else to do. And sometimes that's hard and, and, and we have to you know, find ourselves working through. Maybe we're questioning something and the reason we're questioning is because of our emotional struggle. And that's why we're questioning it. When the reality is it may indeed be something that God wants to come to pass and we have to understand and have courage to navigate beyond the emotional pool. And that's hard. But you gotta navigate past that in faith. 
and in obedience and surrender. So Paul rises above the human emotion and pleasing his friends. And he says, look, I'm not only willing to be bound in Jerusalem. He says, I'm completely devoted to the Lord. And he says, honestly, he says, honoring the name of the Lord matters so much to me. Doing what he wants matters so much. Paul says, I've considered the cost. I've considered the sacrifice. I've considered what this is going to mean and it's going to be hard and the risk involved. But he says, I am willing to do whatever I have to do, even dying to myself, to do what the Lord wants. And so he says, please don't break my heart like this. It's hard enough for me, I can hear Paul saying, but, but he's saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you know what, folks? Sometimes there will come occasions where we are being led in a direction to do something that is the Lord's will, and it's going to be hard. It's going to grate against all of your emotions, all your logical thinking, and it may be difficult, and people may sometimes struggle against us emotionally because they're struggling emotionally with the decision that we're trying to make, and you have to overcome that by faith. You have to understand there is something beyond feelings that's called faith and willful obedience and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord and even at times having to die to ourselves in the process. So as they're trying to persuade Paul, look how it concludes verse 14. When he would not be persuaded, Luke says, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. Once they realized that Paul was firmly convicted and wasn't going to be persuaded, they wisely ceased, it says. That is, they held their peace. Were they still reluctant? Yeah. But out of respect for Paul and out of a confidence that the Lord is always in control, they yielded themselves to the fact that, you know, maybe, maybe actually he could be right and maybe we're actually wrong. And maybe it's just our emotions that we're struggling with. And so they say here, the will of the Lord be done. And though reluctant and not happy, they accepted things without further protest. Trusting the Lord rules over all and look for our lives. Even when we feel reluctant sometimes, it happens. Even when we don't understand or it's difficult, we have to know at times we have a limited perspective and the Lord will sort things out. And we can trust and release at times, though we may feel very strongly about something, you know what, at the end of the day, I could be wrong and maybe others are right. Or I could be wrong in what I'm thinking and yet at the end of the day, Lord, I ultimately want to do what's right in your eyes so I don't become guilty of fighting against your will for my life or fighting against your will for someone else's life. And that's a tough process, but it only happens when we come to that place of decision and take our hands off and you stop fighting and you say, the will of the Lord be done in this. Lord, your will be done in this. I don't want my will. Lord, your will be done in this. And sometimes when we're faced with that process, that tension is there and we have to be careful and yield in the same way. Hey, let me encourage you this morning. Surrender is actually victory when you're surrendering your will to the will of the Lord. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, thank you for, Lord, this section that you've recorded and laid out in your word for us. And Lord, it's tough for us sometimes, we admit, to, to yield our will 
Lord, emotions and thoughts and concern of what will happen and all these things, Lord, you know how it works in all of our lives. But help us, Lord, by the Spirit of God and faith, Lord, may we be those in these times when they come in our lives to say, the will of the Lord be done and to yield and to embrace that, Lord. Help us. We pray for the grace to do that, Lord, to trust you, to let things unfold as they may and to know that you're in control, Lord. And Father, we pray if there are any with us this morning who have not yet embraced the will of the Lord for their life, to have their sins forgiven, to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that Lord, today they would stop resisting and running from a relationship with you and that today they would just surrender their life over to you and let you receive what you want to do in their life. As our heads are bowed in a quiet moment, let me speak to you personally, one individual to another, and tell you in this reverent moment that if you are here this morning and you don't have a relationship in a personal way with God, the only thing that hinders and restricts that is the sin in your life, and we all sin. We all fall short of God's standard, and that makes us guilty before God, but our sin separates us from a holy God. And that sin keeps us from being in right relationship with God. And that's what God wants. God's will is not that you would be separated from him now and living your own way and ruling your own life and then ending up suffering the consequences of your sin, which is to end up eternally suffering and damnation and hell. God doesn't want that for you. God loved the world and tells us he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, to raise from the dead. So now whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. You need to believe that. You need to understand that's true. You need to be willing to turn away from how you've lived your life up to this point and come to Jesus, believe he died on that cross for your sins and that he rose from the dead and ask Jesus to save you, to forgive your sin, to give you the gift of eternal life. Only Jesus can do that. But whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you want to receive that free gift from Jesus today, you're ready to turn from how you've lived and Turn towards Jesus Christ and let him take control and let him forgive your sin. I want to lead you in a prayer if you need help doing that. Right where you're at, you can say these words to the Lord. He sees the faith and sincerity in your heart. You can say, Lord, I am sorry for the way I've lived. I'm tired of struggling. I'm tired of trying to do what I want. Lord, I want your will for my life. Please forgive me, Jesus. Take away my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Today I choose to follow you as my Lord. Give me the gift of eternal life. And help me now to serve you. And to walk with you the rest of my days. And I thank you for this work you've done in me. In Jesus' name, amen.